I was 12 years old when my grandmother, my mom's mom, was diagnosed with dementia. I didn't really understand what it meant at the time and wouldn't for several years to follow. All I knew was that my razor-sharp, witty, and worldly grandmother seemed to be fading in some way that was more palpable on some days than others, and that I missed her. It can be so strange to miss a person that's sitting right in front of you. Years later, with my dad's mom, things were different. She would appear in bursts, some days animated, laughing, telling stories, even singing. Other days, she'd go on in endless loops, repeating the same mantra-like phrases over and over, getting her to complete simple tasks like putting on her shoes or brushing her teeth became these long, drawn-out undertakings that would leave us both frustrated and upset, and she'd often be consumed by random-seeming sources of anxiety. Taking care of someone that I loved, possibly more than anyone else in the world, as she became less of herself and more of a walking billboard for a horrible disease, was by far the hardest thing I've ever done. But that struggle was not, is not, mine alone. Hello, welcome, and thank you very much for listening. My name is Camila Faragalli, and this is On Caring. Unless we do something to prevent it, over the next 40 years, we're facing an epidemic of neurologic diseases on a global scale. The average lifespan's more than doubled since 1840, and it's increasing currently at the rate of about five hours every day. And this is why that's not entirely a good thing. Because over the age of 65, your risk of getting Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease will increase exponentially. That was Harvard neurology professor Gregory Petsko speaking at a TED Talk back in 2008 in Monterey, California. Now, it's too soon to say if Petsco's predictions were accurate, but the fact is that as of 2019, nine seniors were being diagnosed with dementia in Canada each hour. As a result, one in five Canadians have experience caring for someone living with dementia. We are looking at close to 25% of our population now being family caregivers, and they provide 10 times more uh, care than their healthcare providers. That was Dr. Jasmine Parmar. Dr. Parmar is a care of the elderly physician and has worked for the Specialized Geriatrics Program at the Alberta Medical Association since 1992. She is an associate professor with the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Alberta and the medical lead of Home Living and Transitions at Alberta Health Services, Edmonton Zone. So we've got, um, you know, enormous number of hours of care being put in, plus they provide a whole slew of um, caregiving. And it isn't just uh, providing, like, you know, functional support at home or financial support to the care recipients or... Um, providing emotional support. They also do a ton of healthcare-related interventions. Hmm. So they are providing the medications. 
they are monitoring signs and symptoms. They are contacting the specialists and the GPs when, with, with, um, with what's going on and uh, getting appointments, taking them to the appointments. Uh, when, when doctors and other team members prescribe all kinds of interventions, it's the family caregivers who carry them out, getting equipment, taking them for physio, getting tests done, uh, all kinds of diagnostics. And then they are also managing crisis. If that wasn't already enough, it turns out that family caregivers aren't just supporting their loved ones and their healthcare system. They're supporting their economy. Done the economic analysis and looked at looked at the imputed cost of family caregiving in Canada per year. It exceeds over sixty six billion dollars. And yet, it's the family caregivers that are falling through the cracks of the essential systems that, without them, would be unsustainable. According to an analysis from the Canadian Institute for Health Information in 2018, 45% of caregivers of seniors with dementia show symptoms of caregiver distress. I see sometimes the middle-aged children who've moved into the family home where the, you know, their surviving mother is living and is cognitively impaired and is up at night, sleeps during the day, and I see these children just get more and more burnt out. That was the voice of Dr. Mark Novichinsky, a Toronto physician who is the founder and clinical director of House Calls, a primary health care program for homebound seniors that improves their health and quality of life by providing ongoing home-based medical care. Full disclosure, Dr. Mark is also the father of a childhood friend of mine. The home care system is, you know, giving them 14 hours of personal support work a week. And that helps a lot, you know, with bathing and personal care and feeding. And, and, but but it's, it's a drop in the bucket. A drop in the bucket. And that was before we had the COVID-19 pandemic on our hands. Now, according to Dr. Novichinsky, Dr. Parmar, and just about every other person I've spoken with regarding this. It is a crisis. It is. Uh, you know, it's reached that point where family caregivers are just, uh, they are, they are, they are, they are um, how should I put this? They are um, shouting out for help. So I have all of this to deal with and my mother and my own feelings of inadequacy and guilt and, and loneliness, uh, just trying to deal with it all. It, it's been overwhelming. That was the voice of Judith Brooke, primary caregiver for her mother, who is now 98 and living with dementia that was diagnosed back in 2015. She said, the last thing I think about before I go to bed and the first thing I think about when I wake up. And I'm constantly trying to figure out what, uh, what else I can do for her so that she's happy. And there's just nothing, absolutely nothing that I can do. Judith was one of the overwhelming number of volunteers who came forward when I made a request for personal experiences and anecdotes to an online support group for caregivers of loved ones living with dementia. Has there been any kind of silver lining in your time as a caregiver for her? For her, no. No. Um, it'll, it'll be a lot easier for me when she dies. Uh, and it's horrible to think that, that I want her to die so I can be free. But, um, you know, that's just a, a feeling uh, that I need, I need some, I, I need a break. Mm -hmm. I need somebody to, to take over. A lot of what happens behind closed doors 
about. It's it's hidden, and and fortunately, you know, there are organizations like the the Alzheimer's Society of of Canada, Alzheimer's Society of Ontario, Toronto, who have programs to help caregivers who are overburdened and, and uh, have support groups and education and, and sometimes access to actual services that will provide some respite. Mm-hmm. But again, it's it's not enough. It's it's the right thing, but we need more of the right thing. Let's hear now from Christy McKay, Director of Community Support Services at the Alzheimer's Society of Toronto. Caregivers, especially of people living with dementia, are extremely, extremely, extremely important. Um, and unfortunately, there does become a point in the disease process where the person living with dementia oftentimes is not aware that they even have dementia, not aware that there's a problem, you know, not aware of they've lost the ability to have insight in so many things, right? So the caregiver is really doing so much work in in so many ways to, you know, get the day-to-day of life going, to keep their relationship going, to organize all the care. It's very, very difficult. We're going to be hearing a lot more from Dr. Novachinsky, Christy, and Dr. Parmar, among many others. But for now, let's let the caregivers speak for themselves. Her words don't really make sense anymore. She doesn't understand um, fairly basic conversation or questions. She tends to repeat formulas that she understands, kind of like, you know, how, how are you? You look beautiful today. It's so nice to see you. But, like, she doesn't recognize... She recognizes me as someone that she loves, but she can't remember my name. Um, I don't think she really comprehends that I'm her daughter anymore. That's the voice of Kim Nelson, whose mother was diagnosed with dementia about five years ago, and who alternates duty as primary caregiver with her sister, who lives in Belgium. Lately, Kim has been hosting her mother in her own studio apartment. You know, I I was talking to someone at one point, and I made the comment that being with my mother in, in the really advanced state of her dementia is a master class in ambivalence. Like, you're constantly holding opposites and trying to reconcile them. It's not always, she's not always gone. All of a sudden, something will pop up, and she'll be, like, clear for 10 minutes. Or maybe one minute. Yeah. And it's and it's also that moment of, oh my gosh, she's clear, and then it's gone. You know? And in that moment, maybe she told you she loved you, and I'm super happy, and I'm thinking, oh, there's a little part of her, and then literally ten minutes later, she can't string four words together that make sense. Or she's lucid, and she says something like, you know, you don't care about me. Why don't you put me out on the street? Because I didn't give her something she wanted. And then the pain of that, but then that's also gone. Kim is not alone in the pain and frustration that she feels when it comes to facing anger and even aggression from the person she's sacrificing so much of herself for. All of a sudden, my mother will have this... My mother was never an aggressive person, but with the dementia, sometimes when she gets angry, she gets, not physically, but she'll, she can say something really, really hurtful. I mean, again, this is when she makes sense because most of the time she doesn't. But but when she still was had a better cognitive capacity, um, you know, sometimes she would accuse me of doing or saying things that I'd never said. And it's that holding of I really hate who you are when you do this, but I love you so much at the same time. 
feeling like rage and so much love for this person at the same time. And that's something that as human beings, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to navigate such extreme feelings sometimes and having to accept that they're both there and that they can coexist. She's angry at me. And when she gets really down and agitated, she gets downright mean. She said, I am so disappointed in you for putting me in here. And that that's, I, you know, I know that she wouldn't say that if she didn't have dementia, but it still hurts. And so in the beginning, when she was first diagnosed and, and she refused to, to, she wanted to be able to administer her own pills and she wanted to do this and that and everything. And she got violent. She was throwing things at me, swearing at me. She would hang, phone me and scream in my ear and then hang up. And I would go and visit her. She'd scream at me, throw something at me, and I would have to leave. It was horrible. I was so exhausted and and torn and, and feeling of guilt and anxious and, you know, you just name any emotion that's negative, and I had it. On top of the incredible emotional strain that so often comes with being a caregiver for a family member with dementia, caregiving can present a whole other kind of strain, too. For me, it got to the point where I wake up at four um, and try to get like three or four hours of work in before she woke up. Wow. Uh, because or else I, I, I couldn't focus. I, I'm an actor and um, I had to be really mindful of how much time, if I booked something, how much time it might take, where it was. I wouldn't audition for anything that was out of town because I couldn't move my mom. So that limited the potential for some work. I only had one care caregiver that really worked out that spoke French with my mom. So I also had to make sure that she was always available because if she wasn't, then I, I couldn't take work. So I was originally actually a graduate student in neuroscience uh, when my dad was diagnosed. This is Emily McClellan, whose father was diagnosed with early onset dementia when she was in her mid-twenties. My dad was 63 when he was in the hospital. Um, and then he died just one month into being 64. I'm so sorry. Because of the care that was involved, it was just really hard to do both, especially because my dad had a lot of energy still, and he, he didn't really have anything to do during the day. That was where it was really hard. So I basically stopped um, my program, and I went, and I just found a job that allowed me to just come into work, have no homework after, um, so I, yeah, basically shift work because I couldn't do the stuff that I'd done before. Mm. He died pretty quickly. But the problem was, was nobody told me that at the time. I just thought, okay, this is the rest of my life. And I was like, he could live for another 20 years like this. Like, that was what I thought. So, and that was what, I, that was what people told me. They're like, you know, he's young, he's healthy otherwise. So I just thought, you know, this is my life now. I'm like basically a stay-at-home mom to my father. Emily brings us to an issue that came up with virtually every caregiver that I spoke with. A lot of my peers didn't understand what I was going through. Like, a lot of them would be like, oh, yeah, my dad had cancer. It was so scary. And it's like, well, you know, your parents with cancer is still able to take care of themselves. They can still, you know, 
feed themselves. Like they might be sick and you might have to help them. They might feel unwell, but they're not a danger to themselves. They're not going to walk into traffic. I don't think people fully got that part of it. I mean, people understand that this person is declining cognitively and that they're your parent. So that must be difficult, but you know, I'd get comments like, oh, you must be so blessed to be able to take care of your mom, and it's so good that you can at least have this time together. And I'm like, yes, absolutely, in one sense. But also, I don't actually have time with my mom often because she's not present most of the time. And it's heartbreaking because you're constantly dealing with this ambiguity of having the person, the person is still here, but they're also gone at the same time. And I think that's a very hard thing to understand if you're not actually living it or understanding what it's like to feel the constant pressure of making sure that they don't hurt themselves or, you know, that they're well, kind of as you would with a child, but someone who's fully grown, who has developed certain behavioral patterns, who still has kind of a relationship with you, even though they're not aware of it and certain dynamics seem to come up spontaneously. So it's, it's complex in so many ways. Or people that give you advice, like to entertain your mom, you know, they'll, they'll be like, oh, why don't you paint with her? Why don't you do this or do that? But again, it's not that simple. And not all of them have the same interests. And even if they had that interest before, maybe they don't anymore. Or it also sometimes changes from hour to hour. So there are no simple fixes to it. And I think people underestimate how you're constantly pivoting and watching and trying to adjust all while dealing with daily grief because you're losing a part of them even when you think they're mostly gone all of a sudden something else goes so you're in a constant state of mourning something and I don't think people get that about today was applicable even before the start of 2020. COVID-19 would present a whole new world to family caregivers of people with dementia. We'll talk about that next time on On Caring. My name is Camila Faragaldi. Thanks for listening.